0: Hello and welcome to another SPAC Insider Podcast, where we bring an independent eye in interviewing the targets of SPAC transactions and their SPAC partners. Electronics manufacturing is a huge sector, but it's not all large corporations doing the work to get new hardware to market, particularly at the prototyping phase. Tempo Automation hopes to use its SPAC deal to become that player. I'm Nick Clayton, and this week my colleague Merlina Haddad and I speak with Tempo Automation President and CEO Joy Weiss and Chairman Behrouz Abdi. Tempo closed a combination with Ace Convergence Acquisition Corporation in November 2022. Joy tells us why the SPAC route was the right approach for Tempo's strategy in its space, while Beirouz, who came over from Ace Convergence, walks us through the technology landscape from a SPAC's perspective, and what it was like getting a deal to close under challenging market conditions. Take a listen. So just to start out, Joy, you know, SPAC watchers have seen a lot of transactions in the additive manufacturing space, but Tempo is different in that it's not simply shaping objects out of different materials, but you're really producing much more complex electronics components, albeit through a similar outsourced process to some of the uh, other deals we've seen. But so can you just walk us through how your platform works and how it's different from some of the others in this space?
1: We really have pioneered the use of software and AI to transform the speed and quality of electronics prototyping and on-demand manufacturing. By way of background, I've led several semiconductor companies, and the last of those was acquired by what is now Analog Devices. And as a startup leader, our new product delivery schedule meant everything. But my engineers were routinely baking in an extra manufacturing cycle into the prototyping phase for our products, because they couldn't trust the vendors to deliver a quality product on time. And it drove me crazy. And so our goal at Tempo is to help companies get their electronic products to market as quickly as possible, faster than they can with traditional electronics manufacturers. We work with many of our customers from product concept through to production. And in general, our customers migrate to a volume manufacturing specialist for their volume production. Because volume manufacturing is a different paradigm than the quick turn, high mix, low volume paradigm of building the early phases of a product to get it to production readiness. And it turns out that this market is sort of lived under the radar for quite some time. It's about a $290 billion domestic market for low volume electronics manufacturing that has been relatively untouched by technology. And so this is where we've focused our software around automation, process improvement, and bringing data to bear on producing a great version of a early product as quickly as possible and perfectly.
0: Great, and for Beiruz, you know, you came over from the SPAC side with Ace Convergence, and you now serve as the chairman of Tempo following the deal's close. And so, through your process, what stood out to you about what Tempo has built so far, and, and, and sort of the opportunity in front of it? I think, as Joy
2: mentioned, uh, you can realize that it's a really large TAM for this uh, for this industry. What we really like about this, you, you asked a very insightful question about the uh, three D additive manufacturing, smart manufacturing. What is really different here? In those cases your supply chain is actually far more complex you have to have injection molding uh, metal plating 3d printing you have you have a lot of different material you've got to deal with in this case it's actually the supply chain is very much streamlined it's a uh, pcb there's only so many different kinds of pcb that you can build organic material that you can build and then the chips. They're all coming from well-known, well-established, very efficient supply chain. So for us, that part of the problem that, you know, is already solved. It's a matter of really automating the assembly and building, which is still a lot of challenges. It's a high barrier of entry, but we don't have to deal with different material. If you look at the manufacturing lines at Tempo, they're very, very similar to each other. There's three, four, five, how many number of lines that there are you don't have to have all of a sudden a metal plating machine coming in or a mold injection machine coming in. It's really very similar. It's actually very efficient the way it's set up. So what we really like is that part of it, the size of the market, and really the fragmentation in the market and the mixture of the IT and the automation that allows people to come in, engineers to come in place their orders, they upload their electronic file, their design, and they get product back in a short amount of time, much shorter than the usual cycle time, and much higher quality because of the automation and because of the transparent process that the IT system allows.
3: Great. And just getting a bit more into that, Tempo is looking to roll out its new customer-facing portal early this year. So I'm interested to hear how that is going and how will that help accelerate Some of your growth
1: initiatives going well you know the the goal is really to provide a frictionless customer experience to make it as easy as possible for customers to provide us with the specifications that are required for us to manufacture a product but also that has to recognize that when you're in the design phase for a product for a product the likelihood that you will make multiple changes along the way is very high. In the prototyping phase of a product, there are typically 14 iterations on average. It could be much higher than that. It could be less than that. But imagine that you're going through 14 iterations of a Of a product before you get it exactly right to where you want it whether that's from a performance perspective or the form factor or a myriad of factors that might play into what you're trying to bring to market think about being a manufacturer like that's dealing with one change order after the other sometimes within a day. And so the ability to very adeptly handle rapid change as you are trying to get something onto the production line is part of what we're trying to enable with every release of our software, which is dealing with the sort of technical logistics of this almost real-time evolution of a product while you're trying to get it onto the production line and make a perfect version of it. Uh, As you may know, in volume production, you kind of, you know, you set up a production line and you plan to run it for days or months or years even, and you're looking at yield as your key metric, quality and yield. In our case, if I'm only making three of something, or 23 of something, or even 123 of something, everyone counts because each one is going back probably to a product developer or a software developer to continue their work so that they can get their product to market on time. And so we're interacting with customers during a phase of their life cycle when they're on the march to get to revenue with a new product. And so everything we can do that helps shave time off of that process and ensure that they don't have to build yet another version, build the 15th iteration or the 16th iteration because we miscommunicated or got something wrong or were not able to produce something is of critical importance. And so with every release of our software over the next while, everything will be about Uh, perfecting the journey for the customer, ensuring that we bring more and more technology to bear on their ability to iterate quickly uh, and uh, get a perfect product out the other side.
3: And getting more into that competitive landscape, we think of 3D printing as relatively new, but companies have been building circuit boards for decades. So just how fragmented is that space outside of the major
1: manufacturers? Yeah, that's a really good question. The $290 billion market that we alluded to is for low-volume electronics manufacturing, and it's the domestic market for that. As you might imagine, there's actually trillions of dollars spent on electronics manufacturing globally, the bulk of which is done in Asia. But when we think about electronics manufacturing, the largest manufacturers focus on volume manufacturing. In other words, building hundreds of thousands, millions of of a product over some period of time. The market that we focus on at Tempo and where we have focused our technology very specifically is around this very high mix, low volume market that characterizes the folks who serve folks making prototypes and low-volume products. And in that market, the bulk of the market is actually served by more than 1,100 domestic companies, less than $50 million in revenue. Um, Many of them are owner-operated. They are artisanal, if you will. In other words, there's not been much technology that is purpose-built for this environment. And so it's typically the best craftsperson uh, on the production line that determines how good your product will be on any given day. And part of what we're trying to recognize with our technology is that it's actually really hard to find people with those skills anymore. They're aging out of the workforce and they're not being replaced and replenished quickly enough. And so using technology and the AI and machine learning that has really matured over the last, you know, 10 plus years as a way to augment the workforce to capture some of that knowledge that is retiring out of the workforce is critical, I think, to the future of this industry overall.
3: And then what kind of opportunities does that provide for M&A and how are you balancing that with organic growth?
1: We built our technology platform, not only to make sure that we could address the customer's issues cost-effectively, but so that we could have a platform upon which we could consolidate the industry. Beiruz and I both have been in the semiconductor industry for many, many years. Uh, Beiruz longer than I, to the extent that I started my career in telecoms and uh, We saw that industry go through a tremendous consolidation. And if you take a look at the characteristics that I described for the industry that we're in, we see it as being just as ripe for consolidation, if not more so. And so our technology platform is not only customer focused, but it also is designed to enable us to integrate acquisitions very readily and bring them onto the platform in a very orderly way and provide a very quickly a better customer experience and then over a slightly longer term rest the cost efficiencies and automations out of those processes and harmonize that with the company. So we're not just trying to roll up here financially and have an umbrella under which there are multiple brands. In fact, we really are trying to scale the business both organically and inorganically using the pat- platform as a lever to do that.
2: From what we said and coming in as a SPAC, what we saw was that as I, as I said in the previous discussion, uh, a lot of these other manufacturing technologies and uh, sectors, very complex supply chain. Here, what we saw was that the supply chain, the electronic part of it, PCB, and the chips, the semiconductor part of it was already pretty efficient. And when you look at the MAs and integration, the tough part of the MA roll ups are the integration of operations, where you bring in very disparate technologies and manufacturing lines and product roadmaps, and you're trying to put them together. In this case, It is, uh, and I don't want to downplay the risk and the complexity, but it's uh, far easier than a lot of the other sectors where you can come in and say, okay, well, we have a manufacturing line. We have to make some modifications, but really it's just a super layer that uh, that we put that technology, the software technology on, but underneath it, the operational part of it, a lot of it is very similar. If it doesn't run on their system or their machine, we can run it on ours or vice versa. We can move product lines uh, fairly readily versus a lot of the other markets. So that was one part of it. And then the other part of it was, as Joy described, it's the size of the market, $290 billion market and uh, 1,100 players out there and owner-operated that really haven't invested in technology. And uh, this is a, really just a phenomenal opportunity that we see in front of us.
0: Great. And, and just looking at Tempo's last earnings release showed that the company was heavily affected by the semiconductor shortages and general supply chain disruptions uh, last year. How have those factors evolved uh, over time now we're moving into 2023?
1: Yeah, it was a fun ride last year. Um <laughs> and and it continues to be to some extent but look the part of the benefit of having technology capabilities at hand is that you can use them to focus on the problems at hand and so uh, we actually uh, shifted our focus somewhat last year to really try to figure out how we could use software to help us manage through the supply chain issues more readily than our competition. And we've done a lot of very good work, I think, in terms of developing capabilities that allow us to purchase in advance, to scour the suppliers, to ensure that if there is a component available that we'll be the ones that find it, to be able to help our customers identify component availability as early as possible in the process and identify alternatives that may have like capabilities and be substitutable for the components that they choose. And then finally, uh, having a, a proprietary smart warehouse capability that allows us to very flexibly acquire small or large quantities of components and be able to track them on an individual component basis so that if a customer says, I only want to make three of something, and now I wanna make 23 of something, we can very readily identify all of the components associated with that and marshal them for the customer and get them on the line as quickly as possible. So the downside of a challenge is that it can be a bit of a sucker punch uh, sometimes. And the upside of having technology as a tool is that you can use it to get some competitive advantage in a marketplace where other people may not be able to marshal that. So we're now seeing uh, strong benefits from some of the technology that we developed last year and we'll be integrating into the new portal release that you alluded to this year. Mm, interesting.
0: And you know, another big thing that emerged in between the announcement and the closing of your deal is the Inflation Reduction Act. And so how much does that impact what you're doing?
2: You know, in general, it, uh, obviously, uh, there's been a lot of turbulence in the market overall uh, for different reasons. You know, equity markets, the fundraising, and all that. Uh, so I won't kid you; we were impacted in terms of the fundraising, the pipe, and all that. But we were fortunate that really a lot of people that we're in discussions with on the pipe uh, really had a deep knowledge of the semiconductor industry and truly understood the sector. I think uh, that helped us navigate through it, again, with difficulty, with challenges, but we were able to navigate through it. I think a lot of the generalist uh, markets or people were just investing in sectors without having knowledge. They had a much tougher time, and uh, some of those folks couldn't get the uh, deals over the line, but uh, we we're uh, fortunate to be able to do that given the, uh, given the environment.
1: And speaking of legislation, um, you know, the one that was all pleasant surprise to us was the CHIPS Act, which focuses on the domestic infrastructure for semiconductors, everything from building new factories to ensuring uh, to build chips to building the equipment that has to go into those factories to the chips being manufactured locally, and ultimately the electronics being manufactured locally. So we see these onshoring efforts as being tailwinds for us as we enter into twenty three.
2: Yeah, I, I think times like this, you really separate the uh, those who are in for the long haul from the transactions transactionalists, if there's a word like that. But. Uh, Those who want a transaction and get out. And we, myself, personally, I saw a lot of SPAC sponsors wanted to get in, do a deal, and get out. And from the beginning, we wanted to be part of a much bigger deal in terms of building an industry. And that's what really got us excited. So we're in there for the long haul. So are our investors. So, again, a lot of difficulty, but those who want to stay and build a company, they came through for us and helped us get the deal over the line.
3: Yeah, definitely. And then Tempo has clients ranging from space agencies to defense contractors and medical device makers. Just how different are the demands of those different customers?
1: Well, there certainly are some differences in terms of some of the qualifications and specifications, but at the end of the day, there's more in common amongst them in terms of what their needs are than there are differences. Um, Every product, uh, that goes to market that has electronics in it, whether it's a toaster oven or a satellite. There is a design. There are files that comprehend the nature of that design. There are components, as as Beirouz aptly described. There's a finite number of ways that you can sort of put those together. And so our focus on being able to capture the customer's requirements digitally and analyze them quickly price them quickly, build them accurately, and accommodate their changes as they go through the development process are pretty common to all of our customers. Sometimes it's easier because it's a simpler design that requires less change and less complexity, and sometimes it's a much bigger challenge because there are thousands of components and very complex substrates upon which they need to be affixed to. But ultimately, we do see each customer presents us usually with a wide range of complexities but a very similar goal of trying to progress a product from concept to production as quickly as possible.
3: And then just going off of that, about how much of the work you do for clients is one-off projects versus reoccurring contracts?
1: So the very, it's a really interesting point, the very nature of our business is that we are typically, you know, working with customers through the beginning of their product definition, their prototyping, and they're perfecting that product so that they can declare it production worthy. For those customers that only ever make small quantities of something, so there's only so many satellites or, or spaceships that you're going to make, if you're only going to make 10 or 100 or 1,000 of something, then we can be the production partner for those customers and take them through the entire life cycle. However, If you're going to be transitioning to making tens and hundreds of thousands, that's not our sweet spot. The volume production environment is very well served by excellent companies, both domestically and offshore. And so we try to stick to our knitting here and focus on that high change environment of the low volume market. And in that way, we typically take our customers through a particular product's life cycle. And then those very same engineers and supply chain professionals go to work on the next version of another product. And if we've done our job well, and we typically typically do, then we follow them on that journey as well. So you can think of this as uh, versus sort of recurring business, because at some point, by definition, that process ends, we're building relationships so that Every product that's developed, hopefully, comes to Tempo for its uh, sort of gestational period and then goes to market. And either they stay with us because it's a low volume product, more likely they work with another specialized vendor in high volume production. And and we're glad to throw them a graduation party and send them on their way.
0: Great. Well... You know, you touched upon it a little bit, but, you know, we are the SPAC Insider Podcast, so we have to talk SPACs. And I was just interested just, you know, looking at the timeline of your deal in terms of, you know, it was announced in October, 2021, which was, you know, right as the market was starting to turn against growth companies, unfortunately, and there was also, probably around that time, some of the shortages were starting to really bite. And I'm just interested because you mentioned the differences, because one of the main things we like to point out here is just how diverse and how different SPAC deals are and, and teams are, because as we can see, you know, Beirut has, has come in as, as to help in the operation and and that was you know, part of the vision there. Just what was it like kind of going through that whole process, having to kind of roll with the punches and, and be dealing with it from this sort of partnership point of view? From the spec
2: point of view, as uh, you may recall, actually, we had a deal with an FPGA company in the beginning in uh, 2021. And we got caught up into a whole process of specs getting a lot of visibility and with the government and all that. And uh, we kind of when went away from that deal, and we really quickly were able to zoom in on uh, tempo automation, and and really the the again for various reasons that we talked about, the technology, the platform, the company, the leadership in the organization really resonated with our board and advisors as a space that we've got to jump in. So we did go and navigate through a number of different SPAC challenges, uh, you know, as you would say scars. Uh, within the SPAC <laughs> uh, market. But really, when I look at the SPAC, it's really just an alternative way to source capital. I mean, you have the MAs, you got the venture back, you got uh, you know a direct listing, traditional IPO. What SPAC brings, and I still believe some of those advantages are still there, is where you have complexities in the project. And in this case, so one of the complexities was that. We were looking to put three companies together: Tempo Automation and two other companies, and that we filed disclosures on and all that. And that's when we had a lot of the financial uh, turbulence in the, in the market, including the Inflation Reduction Act and all that. But really, a lot of the challenges with raising pipe. So we did go through all that. And again, what we really kept our focus on is a long haul. We felt that you know this is still one of the best targets out there given the size of the market and the software platform. And even though we didn't accomplish all the things that we wanted to to do with the various different combinations, we felt that once we get to the other side, that's still uh, something that we can do and that's uh, that's what we did. So we were still brought a lot of tools to to the uh, to the process with our investors uh, and really it really comes down to being a sector specialist, a sponsor, having not just the money, but understanding the sector. And we were able to put together enough of a pipe and investment and financial tools to uh, get the deal over to the other side. Uh, so I still think it's a it's a good way to go. In today's market, SPAC's probably not the best thing to do, but neither is an IPO, quite frankly. So it's not just the SPAC, it's just going public is a tough situation right now, raising capital. But uh, but I think SPAC is still a good alternative uh, given all the uh, various different tools that are out there.
1: Yeah, well, look, I mean, when we started the process, as as Beirouz alluded to, our interest in the SPAC was um, tied to, you know, what Merlena asked about before, which was we had had a plan to consolidate the industry over time using our software platform as an enabler. Um, and the SPAC product initially looked, To us, like a way, whereas many companies went into the SPAC saying, trust us, give us a war chest, and then we'll do good things with it afterwards, we had a very concrete plan in place. In fact, we had signed merger agreements with two companies, uh, definitive agreements with two companies that would have closed commensurate with the SPAC, and we were basically using the proceeds to fund that now with all the tumult of of the timeline, we changed our plans and pivoted to a plan where we just took Tempo public, so that for us, the importance of that milestone was that it gives us an opportunity to use the public uh, stock currency, if you will, as part of our toolkit in acquisitions. And so our thesis hasn't changed about how to grow the business, Certainly our close relationship with the SPAC sponsors helped us through some very, I'll just paraphrase it as interesting times. Um, We made a lot of hard decisions along the way, but I think we made a lot of smart, hard decisions along the way. We did it collaboratively and we did it with that long-term view in mind that Beirut's articulated. And so I do think that aligning well, anyone that undertakes a SPAC you know, understanding what motivates them, being well aligned about the opportunity for the business and the opportunity in the market are really important elements, especially if it turns out to be, you know, a challenging market surrounding what you're trying to accomplish. And and Ace and Beirut in particular have been superlative in being straight shooters, sticking to their guns and being thought partners as we've uh, navigated this to the point where we're now a public company and you know trying to take our theory and put it to work in the marketplace.
0: Yeah, I mean you've kind of answered what my next question was. It was just simply that given the reflection is: Do you have any advice for other companies that are potentially being targeted by spacs, or, or spacs themselves that are still out there in the market? I mean, obviously, it, it's a lot harder to get a spac out into the market right now, but nonetheless, you know, for companies that are sort of weighing options and and weighing potentially multiple different spac suitors, or, or, or what are some of the details and some of the things that um, you think are the key focuses and and key considerations for companies?
1: Well, I'll uh, just maybe expand a wee bit on what I said before, and then turn it over to 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 Behrouz from his perspective. But certainly, there has to be a reason that you want to go public. It feels like every day we're filing something. There's there's a lot of overhead to being a public company. It's hard work just to do that. However we have a reason for wanting to be where we are right now around affecting our business plan. And we had that reason when we entered into the spec, and we left that, you know, we de-SPAC with that in hand. And so being clear about the journey and why you're taking that journey and what you think you're going to get out of it, I think is one thing that everybody should, should think about going into this spec or Target alike. And then I think the second thing, once you make that decision, we never would have guessed what our journey was going to look like at the beginning of the process. Uh, not one of us knew it was going to be Mr. Mouse's wild ride, as I like to call it. <laughs> um, however, we had strong relationships, well-aligned goals, open communications, and that got us through a lot. And so choosing a partner is, it's much like I used to counsel, I've i have run many, many venture-backed companies. I say the same thing about finding a a venture investor. Make sure that you are aligned and have a good relationship because there will always be things that come along, whether it's hyper growth, the challenges of hyper growth, or the challenges of more tumultuous nature on the negative side. But whatever it is, you need to partner around that long haul vision. And, uh, and we were very fortunate that we had a good partner through this process.
2: Yeah, for, for us, it was uh, very similar. You know, when we started this, this back, when we launched this back, of course, there was a lot of hype around, a lot of celebrities and every mm-hmm. every other neighbor in the neighborhood was launched this back. But when we looked at this, we actually were very purpose built around the IT hardware software where there's really a very tight connection. We saw venture capitals uh, mostly focusing on software and SaaS, and we looked at a lot of SaaS companies. And quite frankly, some of those, when I talked to the CEOs, I advise them to just go a different route and not as bad. And what we saw in the hardware software coming together, we saw this, uh, what I would call very sticky hardware, where it's not just a commodity, but has this huge amount of software and intelligence, which really it presents a high barrier from just a software company coming in or from a hardware company coming in. We had a very selective process. I interviewed a lot of executives, the CEOs. We looked at a lot of companies. We had a pretty big funnel, but we were also very, very selective. Where we felt we could add uh, value operationally from capital and from folks that we knew in our neighborhood, you know, who understood the technology, semiconductor, IT, and all that. And also companies that we felt that have really great growth potential in a in a large TAM and our capital would actually help them and the SPAC process would help them. In this case, again, whether it was uh, really being able to uh, bring uh, uh, capital to this uh, hardware software space, as well as the combination manufacturing that we had in mind. So the advice is really you have to look at SPACs. If you're a target company, look at the specs that are purpose-built, the sponsors understand your sector. It's not just about the money. Again, just one way of getting access and source capital It's not the only way, and, but really make sure that uh, the sponsor brings value
0: to you.
3: Right. And so now with a couple of months spent as a public company, has anything been unexpectedly easier for Tempo or is anything more difficult than you expected?
1: I don't think anything is unexpectedly easy. I wish <laughs> I wish that were the case. Um, look, we have the privilege and obligations of a public company now. And so, you know, certainly we're now getting accustomed to the pace of reporting, of the uh, diligence that we have to have around uh, our forecasts, etc. There's a level of discipline that we tried to instill long before we closed. And so that's paying off, I think. But you know, at the end of the day, our thesis in doing this was that it would give us a leg up in terms of our ability to execute on on an acquisition strategy in a very fragmented market. Time will tell uh, whether we're right on that or not, but without disclosing anything that now as a public company I can't disclose, we still feel very bullish on our opportunity uh, in this marketplace and that the strategy that we executed on via the SPAC process to become a public company was the right strategy for us in this marketplace.
3: And then what would you say is the most exciting thing that you see coming up in your space
1: in terms of new technology? You're not going to believe that I'm a humble person when I say that this, but uh, the truth is that part of the reason that we are in this space is because there really isn't any purpose-built technology for this industry. Why there are so many companies that never scale past $40 40 or $50 million. And so I think the work that we're doing that is purpose-built to perfect this particular journey of low volume electronics manufacturing is probably the most exciting stuff on the horizon. You know, we are building that future ourselves, uh, which is both a privilege and also very hard work. Stay tuned to this channel as we unveil our innovations over the course of this year. And we're very excited for it. We have a, a lot on tap. And I suppose the SPAC podcast won't come back for a repeat performance to us, but I'm guessing there'll be another podcast that Behrouz and I sit on uh, where we're celebrating those accomplishments over the course of the next year or two.